In America, in the 1940s, there was a big mosquito problem. But people found a solution, spraying a new chemical pesticide known as DDT, which could control the outbreak. Problem solved, right? Well, over the years, environmental researchers started to notice something strange going on. The birds were getting quieter. Ecologist Rachel Carson decided to take a closer look. She discovered that birds were consuming DDT through the food chain. Sometimes they were dying, but more often the effects were small, almost invisible. For example, their eggshells were getting thinner, causing some of them to crack before the chicks were ready to come out. The conclusion from her research was stark. DDT was an endocrine disruptor, a chemical capable of interfering with hormones, even at low doses. Carson wrote a book about her discoveries called Silent Spring and spent many years lobbying against the use of this DDT, which has now been banned in America. Bird populations started slowly to recover, but DDT wasn't the only endocrine disruptor. Fast forward 60 years, they haven't gone away. It's almost easier to think, where aren't they being produced? Pesticides, fungicides. Pharmaceuticals within the environment. Uh, food storage containers, plastics. Personal care products. Moisturisers, cosmetics, fragrances. A found in plastics. We have combustion products. I could go on quite a bit, but I imagine your listeners will be getting a bit bored at this point. These chemicals are everywhere. So should we be worried? This is Hormones, the Inside Story, the podcast where we're taking a look at the tiny things inside us, pulling the strings. I'm Georgia Mills. And in this, the final episode of the series, we're not going to be looking at hormones themselves, but the things that can interfere with them. Asking the question, are everyday chemicals harming our health? And is there anything we can do about it? So first up, what are these endocrine disruptors or EDCs? Endocrine disruptors are chemicals found in things like plastics and pesticides that interfere with the way that our hormones work in our body. Melissa Kelly is a PhD student at Queen's University Belfast. I am studying the public's risk perceptions as well as risk communication. She's part of a project called Protected, which explores endocrine disruption from the risks to the policies to her wheelhouse, the public's awareness of the problem. Endocrine disruptors are strongly linked to negative health outcomes, such as metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes, as well as cancer and also fertility and reproduction. There's been a lot of studies done on um, levels of concentration and risk assessment. But as of now, there's no real studies or any baseline information about what the general public knows about endocrine disruptors. Given that there's this potentially dangerous stuff out there all around us, Melissa's project was finding out whether people really were aware of these things and the health risks they might pose. And so for my research project, I did focus groups and also a large online survey. And some early results from her work are coming in. 
I can let you know that awareness is very, very low. Um, unless you personally are affected by maybe a hormone-related disorder or you work in a field like agriculture or food sciences, you probably have no idea what endocrine disruptors are. Which actually didn't surprise Melissa at all. She was in the exact same boat when she started her PhD. So before I even interviewed for this position, obviously I was desperately Googling like what are endocrine disruptors? Because honestly, I didn't know what they were before I went into this uh, project. So we have growing evidence that there are endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment. But what are they and how do they affect our bodies? And what can we do about it? Well, to start with, let's find out how they work. We know the endocrine system is made up of a collection of tissues and glands. For example, the thyroid glands, the pancreas, the testes in males and the ovaries in females. This is Michelle Bellingham. She's a lecturer at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Glasgow. The endocrine system itself will control normal physiology of a number of systems, for example, reproduction, stress, growth and metabolism, appetite regulation. So it's an important system. And these endocrine disruptors or endocrine disrupting chemicals have the potential to interfere with this normal hormonal system within the body if they can get into the body. So endocrine disruptors are any chemical which disrupts the endocrine system, like a phone signal disrupts a recorder. So they can get into the body through a number of routes. So ingestion, so we can consume endocrine disrupting chemicals. They can be absorbed through the skin or they can be inhaled. So there are a number of different routes in which they can get into our body. And once they're inside the body, they have the potential to actually bind to our normal hormone receptors that are in our body. And through doing this, they can have the potential to block or mimic what our normal endogenous hormones can do. They do this because they, a lot of these endocrine disrupting chemicals have a similar structure to our own endogenous hormones. So some of them might look like Oestrogen, they might look a similar structure to testosterone or androgens or other uh, hormone structures. And so they are able to fool the body by binding to the receptors that are, that are there for our natural hormones and cause their um, mischievous effects. Our internal system of these hormonal messages and the receivers is extremely clever, but it can be tricked. Because the body can't really tell the difference between the shape of a, a normal hormone and the shape of a, a synthetic chemical that enters the body. And as we heard earlier, these chemicals can be in our food, water, pesticides, skincare products. So should we be worried? We've seen over the past few decades now an increase in a number of diseases. For example, diabetes, obesity, metabolic diseases and a number of reproductive problems and defects in humans. Now, there's obviously lifestyle factors, genetic factors that are associated with these diseases, and that's unequivocal. But there's also an indication that um, some of these diseases, uh, such as diabetes, obesity, reduction in, in fertility, can have underlying role of chemicals within our environment. So there are these chemicals affecting our hormone systems and there are troubling rises in disease with a hormonal component. But can we really link the two? 
One major clue that some of these chemicals can really be dangerous comes from disasters. One of the big incidents that occurred that led us to showing association between chemicals and uh, endocrine disruptive effects was the Seveso explosion in Italy in 1976. There was a factory in the Lombardo area of Italy making chemicals called dioxins. But something went very wrong. There was an explosion. These chemicals ended up being released into the environment over an 18-kilometre radius. And the effects were seen almost instantly. So immediate local impacts were, were evident. Lots of deaths of wild animals. Farmers reported things like cats falling over and their tails falling off. Hundreds of cattle were killed. But the impacts went on for much longer. Over a number of years, scientists have been able to study the people who were affected and their offspring. And from this, there's been uh, an association between exposure to these dioxins and a number of endocrine uh, and reproductive defects, but also uh, carcinogenic effects as well. So this led us to a greater understanding of the impacts of these dioxins and the potential that they have to enter the body and have negative consequences, not only on the um, those that were exposed at the time, but also a generational effect on their offspring. There were cancers, low fertility rates. It was an international scandal, and it led to greater regulation of these chemicals, dioxins. But these accidental large-scale events don't really tell us about the impacts of more normal exposure levels to endocrine disruptors that we might see in our daily lives, or how best to regulate them. It's not what a normal exposure looks like. We're not normally exposed to these high levels of these chemicals. So although uh, having that incident to be able to study the impact of these this one chemical, these dioxins, um, it's not a realistic exposure to be able to base all risk assessments on that chemical on because this was exceptionally high exposure and we're not exposed to those uh, levels of dioxins. We're exposed to a a number of different chemicals on a daily basis and these are probably uh, most likely at very low levels. Think of it like this. If you ate a thousand bananas at once, it would almost certainly kill you. But we would never think about banning bananas. So dose is really important in understanding how to control these substances that might be harmful. Something could be toxic only at extremely high levels, while something else might have a harmful effect in minuscule amounts. Or it could be safe on its own, but dangerous if it interacted with another chemical. Tricky, right? So this is where experiments can come in. Testing combinations or small concentrations on study subjects, which are usually animals. For example, Michelle looks at sheep. She grazes them on grass fertilised by something called sewage sludge, which can contain some of these chemicals. Biosolids that come from wastewater treatment plants are a a common fertiliser that are used in agriculture. And they're a a fantastic fertiliser. They they contain all the nutrients that we need for fertiliser and it's a way of of, uh, our wastewater being recycled uh, to land. However, alongside this, these biosolids, because they come from wastewater, contain a complex mixture of all the chemicals that 
we as humans are exposed to. So because they come from our own wastewater, they, they contain all the, the pollutants and all the chemicals that, that humans will use on, on, on a daily basis. They grazed sheep on land that had been fertilised in this way and then looked at the health of the sheep and also of their lambs. We looked at their hormone levels, we looked at their size, we looked at the size of their testes, which would be an indicator of uh, fertility. We looked at other measures of fitness in these animals. And on the outside, these males appeared healthy and with no significant impact on their hormonal systems, looking at just the hormone levels. Great news. So the lambs seem to be perfectly normal. But then Michelle and her team looked closer at the male lamb's testicles under a microscope. They were expecting to see a normal structure. You'd see beautiful round structures with lots and lots of nuclei, so lots of dots which would indicate the, the cells which are developing into normal sperm cells. But instead they saw something quite different. We saw tubules which had significantly fewer uh, of these cells that would go on to produce normal sperm. And also of significance was there was fewer of a specific cell type which nourishes the cells to become mature sperm. So there's lots of tubules which looked empty, in fact. So it wouldn't even take an expert, microscopy expert, to tell the difference between our exposed and control animals. Despite these animals and their testicles appearing healthy on the outside, zooming right in with an expert eye revealed that something had indeed gone wrong. It'd probably be a cliche to say it was a eureka moment, but it certainly was exciting in terms of there was this outwardly normal appearance of these testicular structure on the outside. So I guess a lesson, in fact, is to not automatically assume just by the external phenotype that everything's going on okay in the internal, at the cellular level. This gave Michelle and her team enough evidence that something was affecting the lamb's normal development in the womb, which could then be having an impact on their reproductive health later down the line. And given that sperm count is a worry in the West, there are concerns that endocrine-disrupting chemicals could be going under the radar and causing these fertility problems. Obviously, we're not sheep, and the vast majority of us don't tend to graze on grass, so our exposure and our reactions could be quite different. So Michelle's work doesn't yet confirm that the chemicals in these fertilisers are acting as endocrine disruptors in people, or even which chemicals are causing these changes in the sheep. And as it turns out, that's harder to pin down than we might think. Sewage sludge is a complex mixture of many chemicals, many of them at low doses. And this reflects where we are in real life. This is Paul Fowler from the University of Aberdeen. He's worked on some of these studies with Michelle. The complicated nature of chemical mixes means that even when your study finds a significant impact, that doesn't leave clear answers on what to do about it. I've experienced this personally when speaking to politicians, for instance, and uh, speaking to some MEPs, and I'm saying, well, I really... That's great. So what can we push to legislate? What's the compound that's causing all this problem? Well, not to say to them, well, I haven't a clue. Paul first got involved in researching these compounds around 20 years ago. 
<laughs> I have to confess that to start with, I was, I was very cynical. But he's since been convinced that they can indeed pose a risk to health. And he's now group lead on a project called Freya, which looks into the risks of endocrine disruptors. And he's particularly interested in one group of people. For me, one of the biggest concerns is in pregnancy. And that's because of the time when uh, there is a very complex conversations going on between hormones because you have three entities in a pregnancy the mother the placenta and the fetus and they're all busily signaling to each other and the way they do that is important for whether the pregnancy is normal uh, whether the baby's born healthy and so on with the potential of lifelong impacts it's critical to find out what is and isn't safe for pregnant women but Paul says this is a really complex and expensive problem to solve, even just doing the research. It, it's pretty difficult, to be honest. You can do a lot of animal studies or studies in culture dishes where you can give various doses of compounds that are thought to be endocrine disruptors and see what effects they have. To look at humans, we have to rely... Uh, increasingly on epidemiological data, so population-level data. So if you're doing an epidemiology study and you need to, you know, to get really good data that's really convincing, you need to do 10,000 women, for instance, and leave your audience to do the sums, that's an awful lot of money. But the stakes in pregnancy are really high. Take the thalidomide scandal. Okay, so thalidomide was developed by a German company and was not properly tested before being used to treat women for morning sickness. And it turned out to be a teratogen, so it actually interfered with, with development and um, children were born with missing fingers or very short arms or short legs, so quite a lot of very obvious developmental abnormalities. And uh, it went on for quite a while. And people like me are old enough to remember uh, classmates who had been marked by their mother's use of thalidomide. If thalidomide had been properly tested, that would not have happened. So we have an issue here where something could be really dangerous or it could be absolutely fine. And of course, there are difficulties in doing this research where there are billions of pounds on the line. There's sometimes quite heated debate about endocrine disruption and accusations that are thrown backwards and forwards. For some scientists at the opposite ends of the extremes, I think this is reaching the point of being more or less open warfare, unfortunately. Um, and the pro, if I may use that phrase, although it's not really appropriate, the pro-EDCs might go as far as to accuse some of the scientists who say, hang on a minute, I don't think there is really a problem, of having vested interests. And that's because quite a few toxicologists might have had industrial funding or might work for companies. If you think about it, all this testing that needs to be done, it's inevitable that's going to have to be commercialised. And vice versa, there can be accusations the other way that scientists over-egg the danger to try and make it more likely that their work will be funded. People get the view that scientists are concerned about their funding. Well, yes, we are, of course, if we work for a university in particular. 
and that scientists might have a conspiracy to, say, make endocrine disruption worse than it is. And that always makes me chuckle because the thought of a global scientific conspiracy is so utterly ridiculous. It shows these people don't really know scientists because, in my experience, if you put five scientists in a room, you'll pretty soon have ten arguments uh, equally defended, sometimes opposing arguments by the same scientist uh, as a matter of principle. Lesson of the story, never put five scientists in a room together. And there's one other problem. When we ban products containing chemicals we have discovered to be harmful, what do we replace them with? Take BPA, bisphenol A. That's a chemical that's commonly used in plastic manufacturing, including plastic drink bottles. It's a similar shape to the hormone oestrogen, so BPA could potentially interfere with the processes in the body which involve it. And because of this risk, BPA has been banned from products like baby bottles, and many manufacturers proudly claim to be BPA-free. Michelle. But what the, the issue we're seeing now is that, uh, for example, for BPA, we're getting the manufacture of other chemicals that are similar to BPA, for example, BPS and BPF, which we know very little about. So uh, there being, BPA has been swapped out for other uh, chemicals of similar structure, but for which we, we have very little uh, evidence t- to know whether they're safe or not. So BPA is gone, but BP something else has been swapped back in. And these are chemicals that have kind of similar structures, but we don't actually have much research into whether they're safe or not. Yep, yep. And that's where the the issues lie as well in terms of, you know, chemical manufacturing regulations. I guess it's been likened to this whack-a-mole where we get rid of one only for another one to, to pop up in its place but we just know less about it. So even if we do know something can be an endocrine disruptor, we often don't know if the thing taking its place is more, less, equally harmful. So is this just a risk of modern life we all just have to accept? Well, according to Paul, there are plenty of ways we can limit our exposure to the various endocrine disruptors out there. Uh, Try to make sure you use fresh food, use fewer beverages in cans or plastic containers, Don't microwave anything in plastic. Look at what your personal care products use, uh, what they contain. Look at the contents list. Uh, There's some argument for reducing the use of non-stick frying pans and things, particularly while pregnant or nursing. And to try and find good gardening approaches rather than spraying pesticides and fungicides everywhere use medicines appropriately, particularly as directed by the clinician, and not to overuse over-the-counter analgesics and painkillers, for instance. But of course, um, above all, women should be following the advice of their practitioner, their medical practitioner. And it's definitely not a case of everything synthetic is bad. For example, naturally occurring chemicals in red clover plants are endocrine disruptors. They can cause problems for pregnant sheep. And the perfectly natural molecules in soy, a widely eaten food in many parts of the world, also mimic the hormone oestrogen. Lead is entirely natural, but if you have a lump of it travelling at high speed, it's not very good for you. But it is an utterly natural compound. And some herbs are 
of course, toxic. If you could think about mushrooms, for instance, and how many people in the UK end up with kidney failure through eating the wrong mushrooms. So be aware of the safety of products, but don't be too willing to just throw anything synthetic away and use particularly untested so-called natural products. I would say that um, people should not be frightened to use properly tested products. Michelle agrees that we can try and limit our exposure and our risks. It definitely can't hurt and it might even help. But it's important to keep things in perspective and not freak out. It shouldn't cause you stress and worry if you can't make these changes. If you can, that's great. If you can't, then you shouldn't become overly stressed about it. And also, the things that we do know that can have a, a, a massive impact on your health and well-being and risk for diseases are a healthy diet and exercise. And what about Melissa? She went from never having heard of these things to reading about them all the time. It really makes you think about what you're putting into your body. And I definitely went through a stage of um, not drinking out of plastic water bottles and, you know, making little changes like that. But it's difficult because they are so ubiquitous. I mean, I think I read somewhere that there's over 1,400 registered um, chemicals that disrupt your endocrine functioning. And so there's no way that you could possibly avoid all of those chemicals. If you use plastic once, it's not going to kill you. At the end of the day, it's all about deciding what risks we're actually happy to take and knowing what we can and can't control. More research certainly needs to be done into the effect of the chemicals we put into the world around us, both on our hormones and the hormones in our wildlife. Taking the lead from Rachel Carson, we need to look more closely at our manufacturing and farming processes to spot the invisible impacts of these chemicals even if it's just the thinning of an eggshell. Thanks to Melissa Kelly, Paul Fowler and Michelle Bellingham for their help with the final episode of this series, Hormones, The Inside Story. Thank you so much for sticking with us. The series was brought to you by the Society for Endocrinology. And if you're hungry for more hormone content, and of course you are, they have some great resources about the hormones we've covered and many, many more at yourhormones.info. You can also follow them on Twitter. That's at SOC underscore E-N-D-O. And you can find them online at endocrinology.org. And if you did enjoy the series, do let them know. We might get to make another one. I'm Georgia Mills and I had the pleasure of producing the series and thank you to Katani who was the executive producer. This has been a first Create the Media production. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.